Before we launch into Super Trans or Large Sveda, I want to thank our sponsor Zyboli, transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Lars Sveda, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you on the show and great news for our audience. I have a copy up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter where you will be in the hat to win a copy of that. Lars opens, for example, with people who weren't so positive about the future and why those negative predictions of the future are so popular. So here, Lars, you introduce the biggest bear on Wall Street, Robert Prachter, honest Paul Ehrlich, UFO Dorothy, <laughs> the expression fact resistance, which some people in the audience will be very aware of, the Elliott wave, and the question, are you a feeler or a thinker? There's a lot in there, but go whichever way you want or combine them in whichever way you like. Over to you. It's, uh, it's early in the book because I, I, I want to address how people sometimes are simply not open to facts. Um, and uh, I take the example of Robert Prechter, and I'm sorry for insulting one person here, but it's just a, such a key example. So Robert Prechter, he uses, he's a stock market forecaster, and he uses a phenomenon called Elliott waves, for which there's no known scientific explanation whatsoever, to predict what markets will do. And he, what he almost always predicted is the market will go down. And during his entire career, it, I mean, it, sometimes it does go down, but it, it mainly goes up. And it, it, on average, it goes up like seven, six and a half, seven percent a year. So it's mostly extremely wrong. But that doesn't, for his entire career, that hasn't changed his way of predicting at all. And so I, I call this uh, fact resistance. And I take a person from natural sciences who has done something very similar. His name is Paul Ehrlich. So I call him Honest Paul, uh, because Ehrlich means honest in in English. But, but so he has consistently through his entire life, so he's a biologist, he's consistently predicted that we will run out of resources. And while he's done that, resources have become ever cheaper and uh, ever more abundant. And instead of having global famine, we have we actually have uh, obesity. <laughs> problem uh, for the first time in human history now there are more people who are clinically obese than clinically underweight or malnourished so he's been wrong all the time and and his reaction to being wrong all the time has consistently been just to postpone the disaster so he never really reflects about on whether the way he thinks is wrong and the way he thinks is wrong because you know he, he ignores innovation he doesn't understand the effects of innovation so this so these people are fact resistant and then the alternative to this is is to to read the facts like uh, hans rosling uh in his book book uh, factfulness where he shows that the facts very often point opposite direction of where people think they're going so the facts mainly points to a world which has consistently for a very very long time gotten better and better and which most likely will become better and better. And people think it's much worse than it is, and they also think it's getting worse, when it, whereas it's actually getting better. So, so there's an, then there's uh, another dimension that I add, which is the fox and the hedgehog. 
and this is from a famous uh, essay. Um, but but the fox is one who uses many different methods to analyze the situation, and a hedgehog is one that only knows one thing. So if you are if you you analyze financial markets only using uh, Elliott waves analysis, then you are definitely a hedgehog. You have single mind, uh, and if you if you analyze it that most uh, skilled investors do, like you know. Goldman Sachs or hedge fund managers and so on. You use many, many different uh, approaches. You use from different models from general economics and you use psychology and sentiment and you combine it all. That's the Fox uh, approach. So the worst thing you can be is a fact resistant hedgehog. <laughs> let, let me share the four by four, Lars, on the screen because I thought this was really useful because this. 4x4 four four that you share in the book can be used for people in organizations as well. So I'll share that and maybe we'll speak to that. That will bring it to life for people. And we'll just have a little bit of empathy. Most of our audience are listeners rather than viewers. So just let's uh, bear that in mind while I'm sharing this. I'll share it on the screen now. If you look at the top right on, on the table, we have focused on a single fundamental idea, whereas uh, versus to the right, combining many ideas, models, and observations. And then uh, on the left, you have <clears throat> two other dimensions, and this is from the Myers-Briggs personality test, which I and many other people have, have taken. And there's a there's a distinction between people who are feelers and people who are thinkers. So feelers typically uh, don't analyze data. They prefer to, what, what really drives their opinion-making processes, who they like. So if they like somebody, they just copy their opinions. Don't like somebody, they will just uh, you know oppose anything these people say. So if you're a feeler and you are fo you're focused on a single fundamental idea, then you are what I would call a facts a fact resistant hedgehog, and then you are really not good at making decisions. And the opposite would be that you uh, are a thinker, so you are an analytical. You uh, go where the data takes you, and you get your data from many different sources and models and observations, and then you're a data-driven fox. So I introduced that in the beginning of the book because the attitude of the book is the data-driven fox attitude. So uh, combining many, many different sources of, uh, of information and going where the data takes us. But I <laughs> Uh, but I think it's 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 worth thinking about uh, regarding in anything you encounter in life. A key line here that I wanted to share with our audience who have their ideas attacks, you say, this all tells us that while people are often skeptical about innovation, they do tend to get their wallets out when it works. But when people start to buy lots of innovative things, the prophets of doom adopt honest Paul's point of view. If everyone buys X, we'll run out of resources. However, we can state that on average, commodity prices have fallen massively over the last few centuries, which in no way suggests that we are running out of resources, on the contrary. So we'll come to that at a later point, probably in part two of the episode. But I that links back to what you were saying at the start is that we feel that we're running out of resources, we feel that we're going to be overpopulating the planet, etc. And this is one of the things I, I was duped by this a decade ago, say, for example, 
But when you look at the data, or you look at the facts, like you say, the facts are pointing to something different altogether, because one of the biggest contraceptions to the planet is actually prosperity. And we're begin because we're becoming more prosperous. As a result, we're having less children. It's actually one of the most predictable rules in in general economics, that when you reach a certain economic level, people get less children. And there's a good example in, uh, for instance, in so China. So you have you have mainland China, you have Hong Kong, you have Singapore, which is largely Chinese. You have Taiwan. Uh, so in China, they had they made the one uh, one child policy, and then suddenly they. Uh, it's almost uh, they realize it's kind of working too well. Uh, so now they are starting to release, uh, relax it. And then they find that even though they relax it, uh, it doesn't make any change because people only want one child on average. And you can you can look at, um, at the other Chinese nations or areas uh, and you can see that they are more prosperous and they get less children. And, and the more prosperous they become, the, the less children they get. So by making mainland Chinese people more prosperous, they are bringing themselves in a situation where they will not have um, replacement facility. And that means they'll not get enough children to maintain the same uh, population levels. So um, this this happening on a global scale. And the point, the the GDP, real GDP per capita, where normally you you drop below replacement fertility, something like ten thousand uh, dollars per capita uh, in income, and the whole world uh, a few years ago passed below that point, and now the UN, which is normally uh, too skeptical on population growth, they predict that we have. They say we have reached, we probably reached peak child. So the number of children in the world will not grow for the rest of the century. They, they do say, though, that will not drop out. It would be, you know, pretty, pretty much unchanged. But uh, there are a number of other predictions that say that actually the, the number of children will, will drop and the, and the global population will probably peak around the mid-century and then will drop very quickly. I just read a book uh, a couple of years ago called Empty Planet. Uh, that goes through this. Um, there's also in Supertrends, I referred to a study by Deutsche Bank, uh, where they, they, they have predictions that are, that predict far less uh, people on earth than the United Nations do. So, <clears throat> but in any case, uh, one has to look at the numbers and one has to look at the facts. And, um, when, when you said that we can, we're not running out of resources. One way to look at that is simply to look at the cost of resources. This is what you just referred to. So you have the nominal cost. So, you know, what is the sticker price? Then you have the real cost, which is the sticker price corrected for inflation. And then you have the time cost. And the time cost is how many hours does the average citizen in the world need to work in order to, to be able to buy normal commodities? So there's something called uh, the abundance index, um, which is um, an index of the 50 most uh, used commodities in the world. And the time price of that index has on average uh, dropped to half every 18 years, which means that um, for many 
decades now, commodities have just become more and more affordable. Why is that? It's because of uh, innovation, because of substitution, it's because of uh, reuse, it's because of the precision economy, so we can do more with less and so on. And if we look into the future and we look at the innovations that are in the pipeline, there's no indication that this will stop. In, in fact, if anything, it looks like we are moving towards that we get more and more delivered via precision economy methodology. And where instead of using specific commodities that are in limited supply, we more and more will use super abundant commodities and just uh, change them into whatever we need. So the basic problem, the core of this problem is that the the most the typical view of commodities is that it's like a bucket that we're emptying. But the view that I have, which for instance also David Deutsch has, uh, is that commodities they are a consequence of innovation. And innovation is an exponential process. And because innovation is about recombining what already exists, the more things that already exist, the more possibilities we get to recombine. And this is mathematically, this is an exponential process. And there's, there's like no indication that we are running out of resources. There's every uh, indication that we are moving into an era with true abundance. And that doesn't mean that everybody has enough, but uh, more and more people will have enough and more and more people will actually uh, reach a state of enoughism like your son and my daughter has where they think, yeah, I could get more, but I'm not interested. I wanted to bring it right back to chapter one because because this is called the exponential series on the innovation show. I loved Lars's exp explanation of exponential, but also the jump from exponential to hyper exponential because that is actually happening. So I love you to describe this because you show how innovations have accumulated exponentially. And I'm going to show on the screen here, something that you referred to in in the first part of our episode that I absolutely love. This shows how human progression has been exponential, how innovations have been exponential, tracked from 1000 BC to 1950. That's on the screen now for those people who are watching us on YouTube. Lars, perhaps you'll talk to us about this. So what we see here is uh, it's, it's a part of the data that we have in, in the Supertrends company about human innovation. So that data goes about 3.3 million years back, so includes also pre-humans, where we've tracked all uh, important new accomplishments. Um, so the extraction here is, is data where we can put a name to an accomplishment or an innovation. So what, hap what happened before that was not that much, uh, uh, but, it, but all the stuff that happens before that, we, we don't know who did it. We can't put a name on. So here we can put a name on so we know exactly where it happened. Um, uh, and uh, we can see that it's, there's no trend in this. Uh, you know, of course, of course, it's accumulative. It's cumulative. So everything adds a new dimension to what people can do. 
um, but there's there's no trend in it. It bubbles up and down. And then uh, I've looked a lot in, into the details of the data, and it turns out that it kind of flashes up one place on Earth, and then it dies out, and then it flashes up another one, another place. So you have, um, you can see around, uh, you know, between 200 before Christ and 400 before Christ, there's, there's, a, there's a bit more than before and after. And that is uh, largely uh, ancient Greece, so classical uh, Greek civilization. And when you look at how that worked in, in Greece, this was not a nation. This was an accumulation of about 700 to 1,000 city-states. And they some many of them were within the current uh, country, Greece, but uh, a lot of them were other places. For instance, um, uh, Napoli uh, was a Greek city-state. So Napoli is on the coastline of, of current Italy, and it was called Neopolis, and now it's called Napoli, but it was a city-state. Um, and uh, they they were very creative. And then when they got, got consolidated into a uh, um, dictatorship by Alexander the Great, who, <laughs> who actually was a disaster for the Greeks, um, then their creativity died. And you see this pattern again and again. You have young civilization is very creative, and then it get, becomes more centralized, and then and 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 institutionalized, and then becomes over institutionalized, and then the creativity dies, and then it, it starts somewhere else and dies again. So there's, there's a there's a clear break around 1450, uh, where certainly it it uh, it really really starts going up, and that happened in Western Europe. And it happened in uh, half of half of it was not only in Western Europe, but it was in ten percent of Western Europe, and that is an area which includes northern Italy, the current Switzerland, uh, Germany, some of the eastern France, Benelux, uh, England, um, and if we look at that, the time where this happened and the area where this happened, this was a city-state area. So this was after the fall of the Roman Empire, and um, and after the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe disintegrated into all these different city states, and then started a natural uh, consolidation process, and which meant that Spain became consolidated as a kingdom. Most of France did. Eastern European uh, kingdoms evolved, and so on. But you had. Uh, and the Pope was ruling southern Italy and so on. But you had for about 500 years this belt of city-states going up through Europe. And you can, and, and that belt was super creative because you had all these little units and where, and where, whenever one of these units, uh, started to become, uh, less free, people would migrate out of them. There were so many, you, you could just, you know, you could put your possessions on an ox carrier and then, you know, move a little bit and you will come to a more free place. In the U.S., there's an economic institution called uh, National Bureau of Economic Research. And they did a big study of all of the dynamics of all these city-states. And they found out that they divided them into what they call princelings. And I can't remember the, the other, what they call the other ones. But the other ones were what you in the German would call bürgerlich. So they were ruled by the citizens. So some that were ruled by a prince and others by by a council of citizens. 
So the ones that were ruled by the prince were less free, and the ones that were ruled by councils of citizens were more free. And they found that there was systematic migration during the entire period towards the ones that were ruled by citizens. And uh, because of this, it was very difficult to suppress ideas because people would just move. And for instance, when the French were uh, suppressing uh, the Huguenots, they moved to Switzerland and they were very good with fine mechanics. For some reason, I'm fiddling with my mechanical watch here. This is this comes from the Huguenots, really. Uh, but they came to Switzerland, they settled around Beale, and then they started making watches. And still today, you have this watch industry in Switzerland after that. So the interesting thing is, as I said, for, for around 500 years, you had this build of city-states that was hyper-created. Uh, eventually, of course, all, almost all these city-states disappeared. So you still have some. You have Liechtenstein, you have Monaco, Andorra, and so on. So you have Luxembourg. You have a few left, but not many, uh, which, by the way, are the most wealthy places in Europe right now. But... Um, they they became consolidated, but we, we can still, if we look at from space, we take a photo at night of Europe, you can still see that belt. It has more light than the rest of Europe, so there's more people and it's more prosperous. And this is because um, what happened over those five 500 years is still, I mean, there's still uh, elements of that left and um, this, by uh, marketing people, this is now called the blue banana. And the reason it's called the blue banana is just that there was a marketing guy who runs, wrote about that there's this belt where, you know, all the action is and all the wealth is and, and most of the people are. And, and then he had an illustration and the illustration happened to be blue. And then people started to referring to it as the blue banana. But the blue banana is because of the city-state phenomenon. And the city-state phenomenon, actually, by the way, is it's largely happened because, especially in the German culture, um, you would not give all your land to the oldest son. You would divide your land between all of your children. And that means that when a ruler died, uh, the land got split up in different possessions. Then they would merge them through marriage, but this dynamic, uh, supported this long life, uh, this long sequence of city-states. And the, the whole history of human innovation is about it, it, it thrives when you have decentralization and you kill it when you have centralization. I love that. And, you know, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago and uh, got a bit of criticism for it because I was saying how, and you, you talk about this, we had on the show, by the way, Jeffrey West on the show, who's the, the former director of the Santa Fe Institute, which studies complexity. And we did a four part series or five part series with Jeffrey, but he was saying about how it, if you think of a city, like it brings people together in city plazas in libraries, and it, it makes innovation thrive because the ideas share. And you know, when you were talking about the person, you know, this is becoming less free, I can't share my ideas. I'll just get on my ox and I'll go to the next town. It's like a bee pollinating a new area or, you know, from going from flower to flower with ideas as well. And what I was saying in that article, Lars, is it's one of the big problems when people are in lockdown or people want to work from home is it's not as easy to share ideas when you could do it over a Zoom call. You don't you don't do it in the same way. It's not the same kind of dynamic 
bringing people together, sharing ideas, pollinating their minds, etc., has a dramatic effect on how innovation happens. And that, that's one of the big effects of that you've seen in your studies, because urbanization led to more innovation. So you need to have decentralization. Uh, so now I've explained that just by looking at big history and say it looks like it, it, that works. Um, but there's another way of, of saying it is that let's say that you or I, we were, we, we had, we were giving a, a presentation to a forum of 200 people. And then we said, now we have to come up with a solution to some problem. Uh, how do you do that with 200 people? You divide them into very small groups, maybe of two or three people each. And then you ask each of the groups to come up in the, in, without talking together. Each of the group come up with a, a suggestion. So let's say uh, that you get 60, 70, 70 different uh, solutions. So each of them go up on the stage, they present the solution while the rest uh, listen to it. And then, then you say, okay, now you've all seen each other's proposals. Do it again. And then they do it again. And then they go up and present again. And then they go down and then do it again. This is how I, I've, I've had, sometimes I've developed logos on 99 designs. Um, and then you, you, there's a setting where you can say that all the designers can see what all the other designers do. And so they each come up with different logo proposals. I rate the logos, how, how much I like them. And then they do it again. And that is very, very creative. So um, what happens when you have decentralization is you have these small units in each of them, the insight, the consequence and the responsibility is very closely aligned and they try something and then they are confronted with others who have tried something else independently on that. That's what happened in the city states. And I said, oh, what, what they do in this matter is actually smarter than what we do. We copy that, but we do this better than they, they copy us and so on. So that, that really works. But you also have to have a common platform. And that's why free trade agreements is very efficient. Standard measurement uh, units is very efficient. In the Roman Empire, you had the amphora, for instance, and in antiquity. And that was a standard unit. You know, I'd like to buy 30 amphoras of olive oil. Okay, I know what that is. Money, you know, you know uh, con compatible money uh, is efficient and so on. Um, but you also have some kind of change agent, something that provokes you. And migration, traveling, uh, printing press, uh, internet, and so on are things that, that give you new information. And uh, so that, that uh, gives you ideas. And then finally, you have some kind of, you, you need a system for rewarding and recording great innovations. So clearly the, the written language was a, a, a game changer for humanity, but the printed press was a massive game changer because certainly you could record your thoughts and you, and uh, the, the fact that you, you can, you can take out a patent, you can protect a, uh, brand name and so on makes people more willing to commit to, to stuff. So it's, it's a combination of all of these things. And then you can say, okay, so apart from that, what can you do? Turns out that if you have, um, you have the research centers of multinational companies present, you have great universities mainly focused on, you know, uh, the natural sciences. You have a strong financial community, so money to fund it all. 
and you have a great lifestyle. If you have those four things, you're, it's very likely that stuff starts to happen and then it gets a life of its own. And there's some, there's a past dependency. So in Beale, uh, they are very innovative, but they only do watches, right? Still after so, so long time. And, uh, in the Basel in Switzerland, they do pharmaceuticals and, and, and on and on in, uh, right now I'm in Italy and on a part of the Italian coast, they, they produce 70% of the world's luxury yachts. There are thousands of companies doing, you know, uh, parts for, for this. Um, but you need, you need these elements combined in order to get real performance. So <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm going, we're only coming to your first rule of 50 in the book. Let's get to uh, exponential change. What what exponential? So I'm going to read a little bit here because it's not exponential. I hope the, those people who have followed us on the exponential series are familiar with that. We've given a different definition each time. But what I'm really interested in from Lars is hyper exponential. What the heck that's about? And a quick example. Lars, over to you to describe what the difference is between linear and exponential, and then we'll get on to hyper exponential. Linear, you take 20 steps, each step is a meter. So after 20 steps, you've gone 20 meters. If it's exponential, for instance, to the power of two, uh, you take, you, first step is one meter, second step is two meters, third step is four meters, uh, fourth step is eight, and then 16 and 32. Step number 20 will be 500 kilometers. <laughs> and so this is anti-intuitive. Um, we can know about it. It's not easy for us really to feel that it's natural, but it exists. Each of our guests on the high, uh, on the exponential series has given a different ver variation of how to think about exponential. I love your ones of the water lilies. So I'll read this one out. Exponential, you say, is off the wall. Let me put it another way. You say, imagine that you place a few water lilies in a large lake and they propagate exponentially to the power of two until after 20 years, they will cover the entire surface. So how much do they cover by year 19, you say? This is the problem with exponential. This is why people get caught off guard. It's only half full because it's the power of two. If we move on to double exponential, things go even faster since the exponent also increase exponentially over time. That can give a sequence such as this 2, 8, 512, <laughs> 13,421. I can't even read the numbers here anymore. And we see that jump from exponential to hyper exponential, for example, in quantum computing. Yeah, so quantum computing is an example of technology where it, uh, we we don't have much data on it still because it's so new but that it seems like it's hyper exponential so that the progress uh is that not only is is not to the power of something but the the power that it is off is also growing exponentially so the performance of quantum computing is absolutely exploding um and this is this is quite rare to see in a single technology, but there is in a, it exists in a phenomenon that is everywhere. And that is innovation as such. And the reason for that is that innovations, innovation is recombination of things that already exist. So the more things that exist, the more ways we can recombine it. That phenomenon, the pure logics of that phenomenon, 
is actually hyper-exponential. And that is the reason why we continu continuously underestimate what happens and what will happen with technology. So Lars earlier on showed the exponential curve of innovations going back to 1000 BC. There's more reasons for that. And we're going to share those next because you remind us one of the heroes of this show is Buckminster Fuller Lars and you remind us what he said in his book about doubling of human knowledge. And then you jump to John Zyman, which is I'll let you introduce Zyman's law, which is rule one. But he estimated that for every scientific document or scientist that existed in 1670, there were 11770, 10,000 in 1870, and 1 million in 1970. Because it's not just how knowledge has become exponential, but people are becoming smarter, there's more scientists, so there's more science to be able to back up facts and hunches, etc. And this has all been put into the melting pot and the mixing bowl to create a more innovative society. But that tees us up nicely for rule one of your 50, which is Zyman's law. Yeah, that, that is correct. And uh, so the, the numbers you gave are absolutely enormous. But uh, uh, if, if you uh, if you go back to the doubling rate that creates these numbers is a doubling every 15 years, that that is what he found. And then you can say you did mention, okay, so we get more and more, you know, we're more people, uh, they're better tools. Uh, you also said that we get smarter. There's something called the Flynn effect. Turns out uh, that when nations become more uh, wealthy, people become more intelligent. And uh, this is uh, probably a combination of many things, including less uh, severe infectious diseases when you're small, better nutrition, better stimulation, and so on. But uh, our IQ has probably risen something like 30 percentage points over the last 100 years, which is enormous, in fact. So uh, still, you can say, yeah, but, you know, uh, population is uh, the po population growth is going down. Um, so when at some point we'll not have more sciences, we'll, we might even have less sciences. And the Flynn effect seems to have stopped in the most uh, wealthy countries. So we'll, we'll, we'll this all level off. And the answer to that is no. <laughs> and the reason the answer is no is that the computers are taking over. And there's a very interesting phenomenon called uh, automatic hypothesis generation where uh, computers can create hypotheses themselves. So uh, the economists, they, uh, they had a great article about this some years ago where they referred to a study where um, there's in, in the combat of cancer, there's a, there's an, a protein which, which is quite important, which is called P53, as far as I recall. And um, they, they took a computer which was capable of reading scientific papers and derive uh, economic hypotheses from those. And they let it read several hundred thousand scientific papers up to a cutoff date of 19, uh, uh, 2014. And then asked it on the basis of those papers to suggest some ways to, uh, to treat or prevent cancer. And it came out with a number of treatments. I think it was nine. And then they looked at what had actually happened after that cutoff date. And seven of these treatments had been discovered later on and had worked. So 
computers can do the task and uh, and this is evolving super fast right now i am an early user of dell e dell e2 the ai uh, program i don't know if you know about it it's it's um it's um it's from the open ai organization it's a it's a software where i can go in and type something i, I was typing two uh young people holding each other's hands walking towards a maze and it takes about 30 seconds and it comes with four different photorealistic pictures of that not something it got from a library no it's something that it created from my information then i did another one uh, an old-fashioned spaceship being overtaken by um, a futuristic spaceship in space. As we know, AI is, is evolving exponentially, actually. In any case, what I'm aiming at is that computers uh, will take over the scientific world. And for instance, uh, we already, uh, supercomputers uh, have already calculated the most likely folding patterns of proteins in 3D, and that has been made uh, publicly available. So computers uh, will enable us, are enabling us to sustain Simon's law uh, very far into the future. And and that means, uh, yeah, so a doubling every every uh, 15 years means 100 times every 100 years. So 100 years from now, we'll have 100 times as much scientific uh, activity as we have now, mainly done by computers. It's phenomenal. Like this, this is why the beginning. It's the beginning of infinity. That's why you, you can be optimistic about the future. And another another rule that you sh you you don't include in your fifty, to, because you include lots of rules that are really useful. I find these rules are they're the science behind skating to where the puck is going in the future, to understanding where to bet, or if you're an entrepreneur or an innovator you're creating a new tool, for example, Moore's Law. So understanding Moore's Law helped Apple create the iPod because they knew storage would get smaller and smaller. So they started to work on the covering and the outside before the storage device was even available, but they knew somebody would crack it. They watched the patent database, Toshiba comes along, bang, they have their product, they buy it, they buy the patent, they put it in. And I share that to say, Moore's Law as you tell us in the book, goes right back to the 1800s. I know Gordon Moore coined it and claimed the law under his name, but it's running out. And for that reason, it's why you don't share it in the book. I'd love you to share Moore's law in your own terms, and then why you believe it's running out and why it's a widely held belief among many innovators. Well, the, what is running out about law, uh, Moore's law is that... Um we are approaching the gate size, which is uh, probably the the smallest we can have, maybe is four nanometers, and we do seven nanometers right now. So we are closing in on, on a, a limitation that we think cannot be overcome. However, even as we are closing in on that, there, there are some uh, completely new technologies that make that a non-issue. Quantum computing is one of them. Uh, optical computing is another. Um, so uh, just for quantum computing, uh, for some kinds of uh, calculations, it's more than a million times faster than the fastest supercomputers today. Um, and uh, cloud computing is the third uh, way of overcoming this. So 
whereas whereas we run uh, you know most law will eventually in its strict formulation expire uh, we will not feel it will not feel like that and al already i mean i'm just, if i sit here with my phone and i do a google search right it's not it's not my phone that is doing that it's at at a split second my phone is commanding 10,000 computers somewhere uh, in some computer center to work for me. And so in that way, you know, the limitations that my phone have is not something I see. So we we continue always to find new ways of, of giving this uh, progress in the output that we require. I wanted to share something that Lars talks about in the book. So many of you will be familiar with the story of AlphaGo where the computer AI essentially beat uh, the greatest players in the ancient art game of Go. But you might not be familiar with the idea of Stockfish 8 and the comparison. And Lars gives that comparison. And Lars, I'm going to read out a little excerpt here, and I'd love you to take away and extrapolate the point from this story. So you say, in 2017, when Google's AlphaZero chess program beat the Stockfish 8 program, which until that moment had been the best chess program in the world after beating IBM's Deep Blue. What is interesting is that the winning AlphaZero only made 80,000 calculations per second, while Stockfish 8 made 70 million, almost 1,000 times more. And while Stockfish contained data from all kinds of professional chess games, AlphaZero had taught itself to play in just four hours by playing against itself at a mind-blowing pace. This goes to show how computers can get more efficient without necessarily getting faster. And that just emphasizes the point you're saying where it might not be stored in the phone anymore, it's stored in the cloud. And you give another example of Siri, for example. So, so yeah, but the point is that the computers can teach themselves. And there's, uh, there's another point. Uh, I just saw an article just a few days ago that, that talked about that AI can build itself. So what we're beginning to give, we, so we have artificial intelligence um, which we don't have to train, it can train itself, but we also have uh, recursive intelligence so that uh, it builds itself and it, it, and then it, it, it will go really, really fast. And, um, now we just talked about Delhi, the experiences with Delhi, where it really feels like there's a designer sitting somewhere, but it's just a designer who does a day's work in 30 seconds. Um, so, the implications of this would be uh, quite massive. The be but the best ways to talk about this is just to come up with some examples so we can kind of visualize it. So think about music. When I was young, you would buy an LP, and very often I bought an LP because of a single song. It was kind of annoying that I have to pay for the rest of them. Then you got you got uh, iTunes, and you could uh, buy single songs. Then you got Spotify, etc. And then you have this songs as a service. Uh, so it gets divided up in, into smaller and smaller units. But the system also gets smarter and smarter because when I play a, a make a, a Spotify playlist, for instance, this morning I was doing I was doing workout workout and I have a playlist and then I click on improve and then it just extends my playlist with more songs in the same style. Uh, but the next thing is the next natural iteration of that is that I can say, I like this song except the drums. Uh, please remove the drums and change them into congas. 
And then it, you know, AI can just make congas that sounds nice. And then I can say, you know, I want the congas with a little bit of a Latin vibe. And can we have a swing effect on the trumpet so it lacks a little bit the rhythm? And then it can do that. So we decompose everything we do. So um, it will just, you know, it's, if you think about the implication of that, a lot of jobs will disappear, but of course, a lot of services will become available that don't exist today. And I just, when I sit there with Dell E, I'm thinking it's so close. It's so close that software can write itself now. And that means that instead of having developers and you make requirements, specifications, and you get the code and this and that, that simply you say what you want and you get the software that can do it. And then you say, you know, you know what? I will, you know, can you please make a little change? And it changes itself. I, I also, because I've written 18 books now, I've been thinking about the future of book writing. Uh, so my last book, I actually dictated. Uh, there's a dictation uh, button in Word, and it works uh, really well now. But the next thing, you know, imagine a few years from now. I don't, I don't think it's super many years from now. I want to write a book about something. Um, let's pick a topic. I want to write the, a book about the future of food production or the history of food production. Okay, so I say, uh, please, computer, write a book about history of food production. It should be about 150 pages um, and the leaks index. So, you know, the ease of reach should be this is this number. I'd like to have uh, about 40 illustrations and the illustrations should be key people in the innovation of food production. And then it does that. And then I say, hmm, some of these innovations, can you please make them animated so they, they speak when you look at them? And then it, 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 it does, you know, we can do this deep fake, right? So you have um, somebody who invented something and then the person actually starts speaking to you, saying some of the things that that person actually said. And uh, so the book becomes a living book. And then, okay, so I uh, the book is made in half an hour. I go out, I, re I go out in my garden, I look at it on my e-reader and I think, hmm, there's something I want to change. I tell it what I want to change. By the end of the day, I have a fantastic book. That, making a book like that takes somewhere between three months and a year normally today. But we're the, I don't think we are very far from that they, they almost make themselves. Same, you know, make music. Uh, computers are very good at making music. So <clears throat> I want uh, I want some, I'm driving in a car, I want some drum and bass music, but with some heavy trumpet. Give it a try, take it away. It just pulls out something. I comment on it, it, it corrects it a little bit. Um, this, it's, it's so close now. And I, 10 years ago, it's something that conceptually I could imagine, but I, I clearly, I couldn't see it was close. But now with Dali and other things I see, it feels like it's really close now. It's so important that, and it's one of the drivers, Lars, of why I do the show and all my work actually is, I often surprise the students, I know you lecture as well, I, I lecture in an, to MBA students. And while it's some, you could think it's a bit late, but I kind of focus on learning how to learn and how to be able to master your habits to be agile in your mindset to have a growth mindset to have an exponential mindset. And it often surprises them. They're like, are you not going to teach us stuff? <laughs> and I'm going, this is way more important to, than stuff, because 
because of that rapid change and because how jobs may be made obsolete very, very quickly, and because of AI and the exponential nature of growth of things, you need to be very, very agile and be able to jump from oftentimes it's not career to career within an industry, it could be industry to industry or industry to an industry that doesn't even exist yet. And that's why also critical thinking is so important, mindfulness, meditation, be able to control yourself, be able to attend to be attentive, all these things. I'd love your thoughts on that. I read a study uh, about a prediction of what would happen to the Zoomers. So I am actually a boomer. But the people who are well, the definition of Zoomers is that uh, you're born around 2000, I can't remember, but young people, um, uh, that they would on average have six careers, they would live 15 places, and they would have more than 20 different jobs. And so this, this is very, very different from going two or three generations back where you would uh, inherit your parents' farm <laughs> and marry the neighbor's son or daughter. Uh, so we have all these choices and that, that require that we are far more agile and open in our thinking. Of course, a lot of people get lost in that. It's a little bit like when you see these YouTube videos of you have a lot of buffaloes on the prairie and you have a lion who wants to attack and it's just going like that. At the end, it attacks nothing because there's too much. Or you have today, you have people who are on Tinder and oh, there's another girl, there's another girl, there's another girl. And in the end, you never get a relationship with anybody. Um, so we have to learn to deal with all, all the choice, uh, all the choice of uh, what we can do, where we can live, what kind of education we want and so on. And this is new to us. And there's a, there's a, there's a lot to teach in that, I think, also. And it's very much about mindsets. And I think this, one of the starting points is to... Um, know yourself and make a decision about what your values are so when you when you encounter confusing situations you kind of look at yourself from the outside and say um, don't act on your emotions act on your values on the kind of person you want to be and and um and and learn to make decisions like the line i mean i'm not encouraging people to attack <laughs> animals but the lion needs to eat right it needs to make a choice and go for an animal um so you need a, you meet, need to make a choice and if you if you believe that you are likely to have more than 20 different jobs in six different careers go for something you think is right try it uh, get as far as you can you can always do something else later. Life is probably very uh, young, uh, also because of anti-aging technologies that are coming up. And that's another reason then we'll talk about that again, probably in part three, Lars, <laughs> at this stage. But uh, also about being able to reinvent yourself, because yeah. you're gonna have to because, you know, you talk about being an empty nester, you might be an empty nester, and then actually be an empty nester of your grandchildren. <laughs> And and get to see multiple generations, your great grandchildren, but you could be still working because you're probably going to need a purpose and a meaning, a reason to get up every day. I am a, an example of this because I am actually I, I have a master's degree, but in dairy engineering, so how to make cheese and stuff, which I've never really done. But I've been in satellite communications, I've been in property development, I've been an author, I've been in venture capital. I've, co-founded 13 companies so you you can do this and teach yourself 
and find a way to teach yourself. Some people do it by reading, some by listening, some by doing, and so on. Um, once you realize that that it's possible to change, um, and I don't mean change in the way that you give up before you've achieved anything. No, you go in, you achieve something, and you change to something else. Then uh, it's easier to deal with it. And for instance, if, if I knew I would live to be 200, uh, that I still have I have a long list of things I would like to try to be, like drummer, actually, <laughs> an architect and so on. Um, so th there will not be enough time for all of them, but I can certainly be some of them. But like you were saying, to understand yourself, to know yourself, I think this is one of the things that often today in this world should be offered in college is that, or at least take responsibility for that yourself to understand yourself a bit more because it also helps you in relationships not making the bad choices because when oftentimes our parents are basing their advice on their generation and it's totally out of date uh, and, uh actually my children went to school in switzerland and uh, they are uh when they approach graduation they all the children got a morris test which is a very elaborate uh, personality test um and then the it resulted in a very big report and the report also then had suggestions for different educations and different jobs and those lists were quite long but they were kind of prioritized that was helpful to them uh, so my older daughter she wanted to be a scientist but when she saw the report it didn't at all recommend that it, it rec recommended becoming an entrepreneur and when she was 18 years she already founded two companies so and now she's a you know you know full-time successful entrepreneur so yeah that 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 is helpful and there are so many self-tests out there uh so you don't have a lot of them you don't have to pay for but it makes you think about who you are and uh, it's not only for yourself but also in your relationship with other people i mean when you buy a coffee machine there's a user manual probably not needed but many things you buy there's actually a user manual but you and me we should come with a user manual so uh hello i'm Lars. i need to be fed three times a day i also want you to know that i'm better i learn better from reading than from listening and so so a long list that you need to know about yourself and then you can make it clear to people you know i, I don't like cocktail parties but i like skiing <laughs> And as you know, relationships are about compromise. Marriage is about compromise. So understanding also what the other person doesn't like is actually useful as well, because you know not to trigger that in them. Let, let, one of the things we mentioned there was living longer. So that's where the, this has been sprouted from. And it leads us nicely to rule number two of <laughs> 50, which is the Carlson curve. And here you share about the cost of mapping genes. So just as we see that hyper exponential growth in technology, we're also seeing how it's affecting other fields. For for example, gene editing, uh, gene mapping, etc. And this is going to play out unbelievably in our lifetimes. Gene editing is evolving faster than Moore's law. Uh, it's becoming cheaper and faster uh, at a higher pace than Moore's law. But it, that is only possible because of Moore's law because you need computers for this. So this is an example of co-evolution. But our ability to go in and code uh, cells, I mean, cells are like small robots that can replicate themselves. It's really smart, actually, when you think about it, because which other robots do we have that can replicate themselves? But they can. So uh, in precision fermentation, we can code them. 
we spoke about that in previous episode, but we can code cells to make pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, materials, now food. Uh, but we can also code uh, cells and there's a, a human self, living cells, um, even, uh, even recode them while we are allowed, while, while we are real organisms. But it's easier to, to code them before we evolve. Um, there's a lot of research in anti-aging and I, I wrote the introduction to a global bestseller book called Gobbles Age Backwards. So it's out in 22 or sold in 22 languages now. Um, uh, so it's, it's an area that interests me. All, all these anti-aging technologies that are, that are based on genetic engineering or genetic understanding. Um, the ones that uh, we have a research in are interesting because they work on something. They work on mice. They work on dogs. They work on cells in a petri disc or on some plant or animal. And some of them are absolutely amazing. Um, so I don't think we are far away from dogs that live a lot longer. Um, but we don't have anything very close to approval for humans yet. But probably within 15 years or so, we will have. And I personally have, I have this fear that, uh, so I like cocktails, but cocktails actually, they shorten your life. So my big fear is that I have a, a Harvey wall slammer and that Harvey wall slammer shortens my life five minutes. And within those five minutes, somebody comes up with a pill that can <laughs> extend your life a thousand years. <laughs> okay, that was a stupidity, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have a little bit the mindset that I kind of well, I want to you know stay alive and healthy because the longer I I can keep it going, the the bigger the chances that some of the things that might kill me will will be survivable, curable or survivable. Uh, <clears throat> and if we look in uh, a little bit further into the future. Something that seems uh, very close to viable is that you could get vaccines against cancer. So you do a full genome sequencing of a baby, and then you find out maybe perhaps there are three or four different kinds of cancer where there you normally you need like five or six unfortunate mutations to create a uh, specific mutations to create a cancer, but maybe you already have three of them. So you, it doesn't take so much to trigger breast cancer or some other cancer with you as a person. And then, the, okay, so this, this uh, genome sequencing reveals that you have elevated risk of a few cancers. These cancers can be identified by specific proteins on the surface of the cells. So you just get, and it could be an RNA vaccine against these proteins, which means that if and when you get any of these cancers, your body will just deal with it. You will not even know it. And which is the same that happens with other things we are vaccinated against. We might get the infection, but we'll never discover it. So, so this is one of the things that can help us. But there are also more radical stuff like extending the telomeres on our DNA, which we know uh, is associated with a longer, not only lifespan, but also a longer health span, which is the number of years where you feel good. And ideally, we want to, you know, feel good until very close to our death. So um, 
I mean, this this area is scientifically ex- extremely interesting. And of course, the older you get, the more interested you get in the issue, I guess. We'll come back to that in a little while, because I, I wanted to come back to some of the colliding different uh, trends, etc. Because I'm going to share in a second one of those trends. But just to say, we had Aubrey de Grey on the show before about ending ages, to your point about just stay alive long enough in order for these technologies to hit in and become viable so you can actually survive. And as he said, the person who's going to live to a 1000 is already living, they're out there today, they've already been born. But I'm going to share at the moment the colliding because this will help us accelerate a little bit through the trends. And you've touched on some of them there as well. And uh, one of my w- one of my ways of preparing for each show, Lars is and I'm not doing it at the moment because of the heat here, unusual warmth we're having in Ireland at the moment. I usually wear a jacket and I usually wear a pin. But my kids often come into the office and they pick out a pin. And the pin, my son, he, he asked me, so he's, he was, he's eight and he, I don't know if you can see that, but it says the future is intersectional. And he, go, he goes, what does intersectional mean? I went, oh, that's actually a great pin that I should wear for the next show I'm doing on Super Trends. And it was particularly this image that drove that for me. It's the forces behind hyper exponential innovation and how they're all colliding and feeding each other like cogs. That's what I'm showing on the screen there for people who are just listening to us. They're all like cogs and they're all pushing each other and creating a whole new business world and world for all of us yeah that's true so uh this is again uh, one out of many many examples of co-evolution and uh so each of these cocks are driving the same uh, phenomenon which is innovation and you could add more uh, but they're also stimulating each other's uh, um, and some of them we've spoken about like the the rising down in uh, uh in the bottom to the left you have rising average iq but rising average IQ is related to better education, for instance, uh, and all of it create wealth, which uh, supports IQ and and so on. So it's it's, it's all it's all uh, helping each other, and so that is one of the reasons why the, the innovation process that has now really become completely ingrained in the human destiny is hyper exponential. So it's it's. Um, it's evolving faster and faster. And uh, what, where people might be confused by such a statement is that they, they might think, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm not getting more and more cars on more and more this and this. But, but the result of, of this innovation is not necessarily that we get more physical stuff, but we get better physical stuff, better life, better experiences. And and uh, for many people, the ultimate product. Once you don't want more material wealth, um, what you want is a better you, and the product is yourself. Um, so you more and more of the workforce and the services uh, in the marketplace is about improving ourselves. So improving our health, improving our feelings, uh, improving um, our mindset, and so on. Our our insights. Uh, so this is a, a big industry. So um, products that make us live longer and be healthy longer, of course, don't involve any physical stuff, but they are extremely valuable. 
for anybody who's interested in those illustrations, they're in the book, but also Lars has them on his website. I'll link to that website as well, lartsfeda.com, where you can find all those illustrations. We're actually jumped quite ahead. We've accelerated a bit. I haven't called out the specific trends or the specific laws or rules of thumb, as you call them out in, in the book. But I thought this one was particularly interesting for people of this audience, people who listen to this audience, because I loved what you said here. You said, if you can skip analog inertia, directly intervening and transcribing the digital, and not randomly, but with a purpose, friction becomes minimal, then biological life suddenly becomes like computer technology, a dynamic programming platform. Meanwhile, the iron bending industries are actually becoming increasingly digital. So variants of Moore's law are creeping in there too. Incidentally, there are many variants of Moore's law, which can be divided into three main groups. The first relates to efficiency, the second price, and the third user friendliness. You said Mark Andreessen, who invented the Netscape browser, and who is now leading a leading venture capitalist, once summed it up as follows, software is eating the world. And this then inspired rule 11, which will be our final rule today, an increasing number of sectors are evolving from the emphasis on one manual work to two mechanical and finally three digital. This means that productivity changes from being one static to two growing linearly, and then growing exponentially. Everything follows this trend. And the reason I wanted to really emphasize this, and I'd love you to expand on it, Lars, is this is what the resistance to this in old legacy organizations is causing unbelievable friction in there, both from a mental perspective for the people who work there, and they're just prolonging the inevitable. And legacy organizations very often, they I mean, they are in a sector where there's a profit pool, so there's a lot of money. Uh, so let's take uh, the automobile industry. And then you have these people who come in from outside to mention Elon Musk as an example. And he thinks, hmm, there's a lot of money there. And then what he does, what what people like that uh, sometimes do is that they take exponential loss, you identify relevant exponential loss. So in our company, Supertrans, we have this ever-growing collection of exponential loss. And then we uh, we roll them forward. So we just, you know, you know for, for any company, you, you can say which laws seem to be relevant to what you do or might be relevant, become relevant to what you do. Okay, where are they now? Okay, so let's roll them three years forward or five years, 10 years forward and see where they will be if that exponentiality continues. And you say, okay, so if, if they reach that level, is there anything that then becomes possible and feasible, commercially feasible that isn't now? So guy like Elon Musk, he's, he can sit and say, okay, so my mobile phone has a battery. Battery gets better and better. At which point are the batteries so good that instead of driving a phone, if you have enough of them, they can meaningfully actually drive a car. And then he can say, not now, but I roll the law forward and then I can see that in four years, it will make sense. So let's start building that electric car now because it takes four years of messing around to get it ready so and that that's, that's like what we mentioned in episode one the skeet shooting you you can see that i mean skeet is following a uh, laws of physics a pretty, pretty predictable pattern 
but you have to you know shoot ahead of it and that that is what the entrepreneurs do so they're looking at this the, the profit pool the legacy companies they can see what's going to happen you can see the 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 technology possibilities that will be available to, to these companies and you can predict that they will not be good at picking it up because they normally aren't and uh, i i there's very often people who are not so experienced in the whole area of startups, entrepreneurships, and so on. When they have an idea, they're super afraid of telling big companies about the idea. You know, you have to sign an NDA, careful, careful. They're going to steal my idea. You turn it around and say, imagine the opposite. Imagine that you were working in that company. You were an employee in that big evil company that you're afraid of. And you come up with that idea inside that company. And then you tell your colleagues and your boss and everybody about that idea. What do you think the chances are that the company will adopt that idea? And then people think, oh, yeah, I've been working in a big company. I know what you mean. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it because there's so much inertia and resistance. Um, so, um so this happens. So somebody, they come up with a digital version of what it was previous industrial or analog or even manual. And um, it should have happened inside an existing company. It doesn't. So you come from the outside and you introduce digital. And that's, that's how most of the, of the development happens. Lars, for those people interested in finding you to find out about the trends, find out about all the resources that you offer for investors as well, where can they find you? They can find me on supertrends.com, which is my forecasting company. Uh, they can find uh, the venture fund I invested at nordigai.com and my, uh, my hedge fund at atlasglobalmacro.com. And then myself at lastreader.com. It's been an absolute pleasure. So much information in this book. We've barely got through. I think we're probably around chapter two of 11. It is an absolute pleasure talking to you. Super, author of Super Trends, 50 Things You Need to Know About the Future. Lars Feda, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. I hope you're enjoying another episode of the Exponential Series, this time with Lars Feda on his book, Super Trends. Before we wrap up, I just want to thank our sponsors. I boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to move funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com.